Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Cree Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm joined by Terry Bloss, the writer of Lifetime Passes, as well as works like Hotel Dare, Reptile, Steven Universe, Rick and Morty, and a whole lot more. Uh, here we're going to be talking about Lifetime Passes. It's the first graphic novel released via Abrams Shirley Books, an imprint curated by Mariko Tamaki, dedicated to featuring LGBTQI plus creators. Lifetime Passes is a story about a group of teens obsessed with the Kingdom Adventure theme park who begin bringing elderly residents with them when they discover that if someone dies in your group while you're there, you get free passes for life. So that is the, the darkly comedic undertone, but it is a very, uh, it, it very character-focused story, uh, and we're going to talk about it. So, Terry, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate you taking the time. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome. So in Lifetime Passes, I, I like how you're tapping into... Um, obsession and fandom, you know, and the clear real world analogy here, I think, is to Kingdom Adventure, this this theme park that the group that we're following is going to daily would be like a Disney World, right? Do you have your own Disney theme park fandom um, or addiction <laughs> or was it just a culture you wanted to tap into? Um, I will neither confirm nor deny that this was inspired by, by a certain company, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, because, you know, but um, I definitely am someone who grew up obsessed with with Disney in general and with going to theme parks. When I moved to Southern California, I was about 21 and I was living in Valencia. So I was living right down the street from Magic Mountain, Six Flags. And I was going down to Disney all the time. And I mostly just noticed that there was, you know, I thought I was a fan. <laughs> and then I saw yeah, yeah. and then I saw this like obsessive culture around theme parks and around the merchandise. And, you know, there was so much there that it felt like such an interesting place for a story. You know, my first book was about a weight loss camp because I thought this is a great place where some people definitely want to be there and some people definitely don't. Mm -hmm. And that sort of was how I related to it as well. Was I was like, oh, I was coming here for some fun and for some rides and whatever. And then there's people who like, this is their life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's yeah. sort of the genesis of what, you know, um, became Lifetime Passes and Kingdom Adventure, which um, is that theme park in the book. So... Sure, yeah. <laughs> sure, it makes sense. So between the various characters, you know, you definitely show varying degrees of fandom. You know, there's examples of very toxic <laughs> fandom versus sort of healthy passion. Um, what was most important to you to show there? Like, were you, did you want to kind of dig into the different ways that fandoms interact with these properties? Yeah, I like showing, I guess, different reasoning or different layers to why characters like the same thing. So the yeah. main character, Jackie, has a very strong emotional tie to the park, as does Phyllis, who we later find out, the, one of mm -hmm. the elderly um, residents of the elder care facility. But one of Jackie's, I guess, quote unquote, friends, um, Nikki, yeah. who she's just been friends with since she was a kid. So that's kind of the only reason they still hang out together. Nikki's obsessed with it to the point that like, she she wants to work at the park. She wants to be part of the park. It's her dream to be, you know, one of the costume characters. And she's sort of dragging her friend along, this other boy, Daniel, along with her into that, um, I guess, adventure, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's, I am someone who obsesses, obsesses about fandoms and things like that. I, I you know, definitely um, will go <laughs> to that level. But um, I, I felt like it was interesting to show that, and maybe not show right away, but show that these characters have different reasons for liking the same thing. The, the, the Kingdom Adventure Park isn't necessarily bad. It's not about that. It's about the level of which you take, I guess, your obsessiveness or 
the respect in which you give to the thing you love. Yeah, sure. No, it definitely comes through. So I think, you know, within the work here, you have a lot of patience for letting character build and, and through relatively quiet interactions, definitely in lifetime passes. I mean, certainly that's the story, right? It's all about relationships, you know, and you mentioned this friend group, which is, you know, you use friends in quotes because it is that thing of like, I've, I've definitely had relationships like that where you're like, well, we've hung out forever, but now I'm not sure why <laughs> anymore, yeah. right? You have that that awkward moment. Um, I, I think this is true even in like some of your other work, like reading Reptile and Marvel, you know, you're definitely like this very character focused um, writer or storyteller, at least in that work. Uh, but you also have awesome dinosaur battles, right? So like how hard was it writing something so comparatively grounded? Because in Lifetime Passes, there's no escape to superhero fantasy or whatever, you know? Right. Um, I, so when I was approached to write Reptile, it was because the editor had read my book Hotel Dare, which is yeah. essentially like a Star Trek Harry Potter epics, you know, adventure, but with a Mexican visual kind of component. Um, And so they said, you know, there's epic battles in that, but there's also this emotional core. And so I also did a similar thing in Reptile. But with Mm -hmm. Lifetime Passes, I felt like, you know, it was a bit more difficult for me to write because that is what more what I'm used to. So with Lifetime Passes, being a bit more quiet and being a bit more, um, I guess the the fantasy aspect of it is, is what we just talked about, getting lost in, you know, the obsessiveness of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But for Jackie, the main character, she lives in a town that is very, um, I guess for lack of a better way of saying it, like man-made, manufactured to look the same. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they filmed an episode of the X-Files in in her town Mm. where everybody belonged to a cult and they all lived in the same looking house and dressed the same. So she Mm. lives in a place that is real, but feels very fake to her. And this theme park is definitely fake, but that place feels more real to her because of the memory she has there. So that was how I sort of delved delved into that. But but yeah, I felt like instead of resolving this story with some big battle, which obviously isn't going to (laughs) happen, I had to come to the conclusion that, you know, sometimes it's it's enough of a resolution to just stand up for yourself and say, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. And that that was okay to like have that be sort of the um, catalyst for this resolution. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, it's a different kind of climax, right? Cause the, the emotional buildup to that is yeah. like as a reader, like definitely ready for it um, for Jackie and Danielle to say, Hey, we're done with this. But yeah, it is a, a different type of storytelling certainly. So I, I really like Jackie, the lead here, I think is a very believable YA character. Um, I really like her interactions with Phyllis. But then, like I said, you know, just this that that awkwardness of having a friend group where you're like, well, I'm a part of this and I don't, you know, I don't want to be friendless. Um, so so about halfway through the text, we learned that Jackie, um, our lead, is a, a DACA kid, right, a.k.a. a dreamer. Um, and their parents were deported to Mexico, leaving her in California with her aunt. Um, DACA has been in the headlines a lot over the past five plus years, but I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding and, and learning to go with the program, frankly. Um, what was important to you to communicate here and, and include for her character with that, with that detail? It was important for me to write something that showed that young people and the elderly have more in common than I think we care to acknowledge. There was, I keep referencing this, but there was an episode of The Simpsons that I saw where mm-hmm. Lisa and Grandpa are both sitting at the kitchen table and Lisa, you know, they're both upset. And Lisa says, you know, when you're a kid, nobody listens to you. And Grandpa says, when you're in, when you're old, nobody listens to you. And neither one of them are listening to each other. <laughs> and I right. thought it was so genius. So yeah. what I wanted to do was 
was create this character who had this quality that I think is important to talk about, especially at this point in our culture. And as someone from the Latinx community and a Mexican-American, it was important for me to show positive portrayals, um, especially of Latinas, since the the college-educated Latina is the fastest-growing demographic in the United States. Mm. But the thing that I wanted to touch on was that Jackie feels really misunderstood and like nobody understands what she's going through. And when she tells Phyllis, this old woman, you know, I even if I could go visit my parents, I wouldn't risk it because people who just look like me you know, are getting detained or are getting harassed, you know, when they come back into the States. And yeah. she tells Phyllis, you wouldn't even understand. And Phyllis is like, <laughs> I, I'm Jewish, honey. Like, I was yeah. 14 when, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So to have those things in common, to have that feeling of, I guess, persecution and 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 hate lobbied at you, I think is what draws Jackie to Phyllis, realizing that she has... I get not even misjudged, but not even given this person the the benefit of the doubt or the time of day because of their age. So that's what I wanted to do. And that's why it was important for me to, to have Jackie be a DACA kid, especially since, you know, if her parents were still with her in Santa Clarita, then this desperate need to hold on to Kingdom Adventure likely wouldn't be present in her life. You know, Mm -hmm. that, that park represents her parents to her. So. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's a, you know, the memory of that. Okay, very cool. Um, you and artist uh, Claudia Aguirre here, you have a, a really fantastic or seem to have a really fantastic working relationship between this and, and Hotel Dare. Um, how has your work together evolved? You know, what, what for you was the biggest difference going from Hotel Dare, having some success there and now doing lifetime passes again with Claudia? Uh, what changed for both of you? Yeah, um, I can't speak for her, but I'll say that I love her to death. I call her mi hermana mexicana, my Mexican sister. Mm-hmm. Um, we speak almost every day. She and I are very close. And I feel like one thing that's changed for me is with Hotel Dare, it was the first graphic novel that I wrote completely by myself. So I had kind of switched on my writer brain and forgotten yeah. that like, Terry, you have a degree in illustration. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I would sit and type like long character descriptions and like this character looks like this, they're this tall, whatever to give to Claudia. And I was like, oh, I can just sketch this yeah. <laughs> and send it to her and say, this is the jumping off point. You take it from here, like, you know, do whatever you, you want. Mm-hmm. I trust her so much, which is funny because she does explain that, like, I'm very specific in what I want. But she's also an artist who I think thrives with that because she's very quick. She does high quality work and she's like, just tell me what you want and I'm going to deliver it. And for for a writer, I think that's gold. That's something that you, you know, always want. But yeah, I feel like I can be less specific with her now. I would say, you know, Jackie's going to wear some heavy metal t-shirts, maybe one that looks like this, but you take it from there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she wears black. And then I don't have to explain that, like, you know, I I don't have to wonder, like, why did you put her in a red t-shirt? Because she's not going to do that, you know? The, the contrast of when I say Phyllis is going to be very fashionable, very colorful, bright colors, Jackie's going to be the contrast to that where she's just like wearing black. She's got headphones on all the time and she understands what I'm saying and she can just kind of bring that to life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in creating a whole theme park, <laughs> there's, a, there's aesthetic choices that I think I need to make that I can then relate to her. And I'll just say kind of like this and she can take it from there. So did I, you all... Did you map out like an entire kingdom adventure? I created like... an entire kingdom adventure. I drew a whole map for it. Yeah. I knew I wanted it to be fairy tale themed because Nikki wants to be the princess there. So I was like, oh, well, there's got to be a princess. Well, if there's a princess, 
there's got to be a castle. And if there's a castle, yeah. maybe she hangs out with unicorns. So that whole section, it's like an amusement park is set up mostly, some of them, like um, like a pizza. You know, there's like sections that all kind of go towards the middle where there's a focal sure. point. So I was like, well, I got to create these different sections and maybe there's a witch and there's a haunted forest area. And, you know, so it was fun to create all that stuff. And more than like trying to trying to you know, I guess, get rights to or be like, well, I want it really want it to be six flags or something, you know, it, mm -hmm. I think it's more fun and more inventive to create your own thing and to yeah. bring life into into that. So, yeah, yeah, well, and it feels it feels familiar yet new, you know, mm -hmm. it definitely feels like, okay, this this could genuinely be a theme park riding on the coattails of Game of Thrones, but with yeah. the Disneyfication and the Six Flags rides. And yeah, yeah, you know, there, is a, the, there is a scene where Jackie's explaining to this young boy sort of how the park and Kingdom Adventure itself became this thing. And it does start with animation, mm -hmm. um, just like another <laughs> company in Southern California. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was kind of fun to sort of go back and take a look at how those things may have been created. And furthermore, you know, in my research, it was interesting to see um, how parks had changed from the 60s all the way up till now. You know, their yeah. costume characters look different. You know, rides have been updated. So, and to have someone who is old and who has seen those changes um, and be able to speak to them, I thought was kind of cool. So, yeah, no, I like that detail. I, I quite like the the animation history as well, where you invert, you know, sort of the the familiar tale and you make it, um, you, you know, you change that it's a you know a woman animator who would have had a harder time coming up, but it it, it changes the story and who, cha um, and who changed her name. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and I was just, what was it? I, I've been reading, um, oh, the, the Golden Age of Science Fiction. And I was just reading a history there. And there were similar things where there were women writing science fiction stories that were being heralded. And, you know, it was because there, there were no women, but they, they would use these pseudonyms or, yeah. you know, abbreviations, right? And the men would be like, well, I, I didn't know it was a woman, but it's, it's still great. So then they'd have to like, you know, <laughs> after the fact, once they found out, be like, yeah, okay, fine. It was good. I, yeah. I admit it, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's good. Um, what was it like working with with Abrams and Shirley Books, this new imprint curated by uh, Mariko Tamaki? Like, uh, this is the first graphic novel, I think, that is is launching with the line. Um, how was that experience? Did you work closely with those um, creators? <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it was really exciting because since it was a new imprint and it was a new, or, or my book was going to be the first one to come out, I felt like um, it was an exciting thing to discuss and to evolve along with um, when I would have my discussions with Mariko. And because of that, I felt like when I would turn in a synopsis or a script, it was, the advice that Mariko would give me would be so great <laughs> that I felt like the few things that I was able to incorporate because of her input made the story that much stronger. Um, and one of them, I, as a writer, I was like, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to do that. Maybe the character won't like Jackie or whatever if I do that. But I felt like Mariko done so much great work that I had to put my trust in her and go, no, she's right. I'm just going to do this. And ultimately, um, it, it confirmed to me that she had like the best interest of this entire new imprint at heart. Yeah. Um, and it was great to see, especially because um, the next several books that are coming out from Shirley look amazing and, and made me feel really, I guess, well taken care of as yeah. an author at this new imprint. Um, and it was great. I just got my comp copies and they look beautiful. I'm so happy with like the finished product there. There's um, a soft cover and a hard cover. And in the hard cover, um, the interior end papers are a map of the whole park. 
Oh, so nice, if yeah. you want the map, you I guess you got to get the hardcover. But um, yeah. but yeah, I'm just really happy with how it came out, and really happy with um, working with them, and and super proud to be their first book too. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I I've been really impressed by Abrams' imprints this year because um, there's the the John Jennings curated list mm. of Afro speculative fiction, which has been awesome, um, and now Shirley kicking off, you know, for for LGBTQI plus creators, which is like it's it's just so needed in the industry. I think to have these clear imprints and, and focuses and Abrams puts out, you know, like you said, like these hardcover collections are they're really nice. Like, yeah. you know, they don't, they don't uh, skimp on, on making these nice books. So, all right, cool. So that's lifetime passes. Um, I definitely think people should check it out. We'll include links here in the show notes so people can, uh, can find it. Um, so you mentioned with reptile, uh, which I'm, I'm fascinated by because my son is absolutely obsessed with dinosaurs. So like his <laughs> favorite, his favorite comics, Terry are yours and, oh, wow. the, and the one page of, um, of James tiny and Batman where there's a, a Spinosaurus in, um, in Batman's nice. with the ghost maker, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like those are his favorite comics. Uh, he loves reptile. I can show him the pages and he gets super jazzed. Uh, what kind of dinosaur research did you do? Because you go deeper than the average dinos here. <laughs> I'll be honest. I didn't do a ton of dinosaur research because <laughs> I was that kid that was like, um, Archaeopteryx was found in a limestone. You know, I was that yep. kid. Um, yep. But I knew that what I wanted to do with reptile was, um, I think everybody loves if he turns into a T-Rex and like wastes someone. Great. That's cool. But like mm -hmm. I wanted his dinosaur transformations to like, what's the point of being able to turn into a, any dinosaur if you turn into them willy nilly? Like it had to be a useful transformation or even maybe an emotional transformation. So mm -hmm. I did get a great book. Well, for Christmas that my husband got for me, it's just called Dinosaurs, but it's like the most updated um, book with information and illustrations that paleontologists use. Mm -hmm. So it was a really great tool. But I had several favorites that I was like, no, he's got to turn into an Amargosaurus. He's got to turn into, you know, yeah. these ones. And I thought, well, an Amargosaurus has spines along its neck. So you can use that as like a ladder. Like yeah. his cousins can climb up him, whatever, you know. Um, so I did do a, a, some research. But most of it, especially with spoilers, with... Um, explaining there's a scene where he asks his mom what her favorite dinosaur is yeah. and she's like oh that's easy it's a quetzalcoatlus you know it's the largest animal that ever flew um it's named after an aztec god and that was like a point of pride in terms of you know the book being about a mexican teenager mm -hmm. and so when he's scared to turn full dinosaur because he's afraid he could hurt someone like he kind of hulks out right like the dinosaur mind takes over right, right i was like no this this journey has to be about him getting to a point where he's proud of who he is because he's not supposed to use his powers right now either. Proud of who he is, proud of using his powers, proud of being Mexican. And that full dinosaur transformation then culminates in him turning into this Quetzalcoatlus um, yeah. and, you know, saving the day. So I'm, I'm very happy your son likes it. <laughs> I personally <laughs> feel like I need some sort of action figure with removable parts that you can like dinosaur oh, onto. Yeah. I'm just putting that out into the world. Yes. Um, but yeah, I I am excited um, for more reptile. I don't know exactly what's in the works for him. He ha he has a, I think a one pager or a two pager in um, the Marvel Voices Comunidades book, which comes out December eighth. Yeah. And um, one of the variant covers of that is his cousin Eva, which I wrote an eleven page story for in nice. that book as well. So yeah, yeah, very cool, very mm -hmm. cool. So it sounds like it was a like a positive experience getting to work with this character. I really loved yeah. the, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, just, I loved, yeah, I loved um, working with Marvel. I always thought that like 
maybe when I'm 80, they'll like approach me to write a book, you know, like (laughs) whatever. Um, And it just came sort of suddenly. And the editors I worked with, the process was for me very rewarding, very smooth. I loved working with them. So it was great. Good, cool. No, I loved that that connection you made, that cultural connection between the the Quetzal and the Quetzalcoatlus. Like, it's not something I would have ever thought would have brought been brought together. Um, In the but third, it, it's beautiful. He's on yeah. the bus, and you you see him like scrolling through the app that his cousin told yeah. him about the dinosaur app, and he's looking at a Margosaurus, which he turns into a few pages later. But uh-huh. the dinosaur right above that he was looking at, you can see, is Quetzalcoatlus. So like, he's, okay, yeah. And then there's like other hints and foreshadowing. His grandpa's playing Skyrim. And there's like a big dragon that he's fighting. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I threaded it through as much as I could. It's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Other, another important reptile question. Is Darla Deering underrated and actually the superior pop star to Dazzler? Oh, so, hey, I don't know if she's superior. Yeah, <laughs> but, words. But um, I guess maybe it comes from me being in art school. Whenever we would get an assignment, my instinct would be, well, what is everyone else going to do? I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Not to try to be like cool or whatever, but just to like investigate something else. And so everybody knows about Dazzler. Mm-hmm. And I wanted Julian, his cousin, to like, you know, to have all these pop stars. I kind of wanted him to mention like a male pop star, but yeah, I don't sure. know about too many of those in Marvel. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so I mentioned Darla Deering because I had heard about that character recently as I was writing Reptile and I was like, wait a minute, Miss Thing? Like, that's a hilarious code name. <laughs> and I love that she had pink hair, that she was this pop star. And actually, the reason I came across her was because in writing Reptile, I wanted to make sure that if I mention, um, you know, YouTube or Tumblr or whatever those things are, yeah. that it's the Marvel version. And right. so I came across a quote where Darla mentioned Yambler, which I was like, okay, that must be their Tumblr. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, who is this? I was like, this is basically Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but what I love about the dynamic between maybe Dazzler and Darla Deering is that I think young, this is getting into it kind of deep, but I guess young kids, I think, latch on to pop stars or superheroes or whatever Because when we're kids, we don't necessarily have the vocabulary to verbalize who we are and what we are about. It's something we're still figuring out. So if we can see someone that's like, oh, I I like that. I'm I'm a Lady Gaga fan or I'm a, you know, Joan Jett fan or whatever. Um, I think that's that's why I say, like, I don't know that one of them is more underrated or overrated. I think there's room for everyone to kind of be able to pick who they are, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it is. A, it's a crucial part of sort of figuring out identity, I think, in some regards. Um, it, I've, I've been saying for a while now that we need to, we need to emphasize additional pop stars. It, Dazzler has a monopoly on this. Yes, and I would listen, love to read I'm more here for it. about Darla. Exactly. It's like in, in the new, uh, the new Guardians of the Galaxy video game, Peter Quill has a, a Dazzler poster up in his room. So it's like, that's great. I love the, the Easter egg. But we need some. We need this Darla reference, which is in Reptile. That's fantastic. Um, well, and, and, there's, and, an- yeah. there's another like pop star, I guess, like a, a woman who's like a plays the guitar. I don't remember her name, but she's like Lila in- Cheney. Maybe? Yes, yes, that's yeah. it. So like, why not like some sort of Marvel book about all of them? <laughs> oh my goodness, yes, yes, we need it. I'm Definitely gonna pitch that. it. I'm gonna pitch it. 
<laughs> yes, please bring that to the X office and uh, and Krakoa. We definitely need that book. That would be amazing. And just throw right, in so, Dark Veil too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it all. Uh, so, so you're a fan of Skin as well. Speaking of X Men comics, right? And Angelo mm-hmm. Espinosa, Marvel's Generation X. Um, you talked uh, a little bit. I saw this on the a Marvel Limited app, app, app. Excuse me, actually. Um, your your picks for comics to read. And the impact just of seeing a Mexican superhero, right, in comics. Um, and in your own work through Vox and in your comics, you know, you're definitely doing, I think, similar work to advance Latinx representation and, and explanation of kind of, you know, literally the term Latinx, right? How do we yeah. how do we use that? When is it appropriate? Um, I think the pendulum on representation has swung a bit from representation being a win to, like, the right kind of representation where people realizing that's probably actually makes all the difference. Um it's not enough necessarily just to include a character, right, of, of a certain color or a queer character. You have to do it right. Um, how much do you think about this in your own work? And, and what do you try to bring to that conversation, which is which is ongoing and, and certainly a challenge? Yeah, I think it's a really tough conversation or topic to sort of discuss every once in a while because I'm someone who firmly believes, obviously, that representation is super important. I think that when we don't see ourselves reflected back, Either whether or not, like, if I was a kid and I never read anything that had a Latino or a or a, a Mexican or a queer person, I the message I feel like I would have received was that I don't exist. Like, where yeah. am I? Where am I? And I think the function of story, if we share stories, if we tell stories, is to make us feel less alone. So that's that's the function, in my opinion, of story. And I think that I don't want to be. I I'm not someone who believes that we should only ever write characters that we represent because if I did that then I would everything I write would be about a Mexican gay bicultural biracial ex-Mormon you know like I I, I don't want to write the same thing over and (laughs) over again yeah Yeah, um I'll get there one day (laughs) but like but I think that um where we get into issues is when we um are writing from a place where we sort of like either claim that that's not, I guess not claim, but um, subconsciously claim that that's our experience or that we're speaking from a place of experience when that's not who we are. Um, A good example I like to think of is um, like Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. Like those two guys aren't Asian, (laughs) but they made this amazing thing where they hired a bunch of Asian people. They hired calligraphers, martial artists, because they wanted to come at this from like a very respectful point of view. And and I think that's the the way to do it, in other words. Um, I My question would be, I guess, to end the answer, is like, let's say you want to write a story about a trans person. And if you want to do that, and you're not trans, why would you be against hiring a trans person to read your book or read your script for sensitivity, for accuracy, for whatever? Not to say that this one trans person understands the entire everyone's trans experience but like why why do you want to write about that if you aren't willing to involve somebody from that group in your process you know Ava Longoria said uh, who I love she's a great director and um I learned a lot from her when I mean I didn't mean to take this to Desperate Housewives I'm sorry (laughs) but but, um (laughs) (laughs) on the set she said that whenever you know they would break she would go watch the dailies she would ask the director questions everybody else would go to their trailer but she used that as like her free school and she, when she became a director, adopted the idea of nothing about us without us. And I think that's mm. great. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. No, yeah. that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Very cool. So you kind of alluded to it there. And I, I, I listened to the interview you did with um, Layla uh, Del Duca as part of Helioscope. Yeah. And it seems like you probably have 
an auto biochemic like on Mormonism in your system, right? Like it seems like it's in there. Uh, do you think you'll want to approach that one day, and or do, is it? Does it just feel too personal? You know, because that's that's you, right? That's it's, that's your that's your background. It's very personal. Yeah, I may have already written an entire synopsis, and okay. it may be out to several companies. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I think for, the only way I feel like I can do it is. Um, to change names and have it be a sort of like semi-autobio thing where you read it mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, this is essentially his story, but, may but maybe did this part really happen? Like, I yeah. prefer that, especially yeah. because there are other people that I um, really care about who I grew up with that are in the comics industry. You know, I love my parents, but we don't necessarily agree on Mormonism. <laughs> so I don't want to yeah. write something that would then necessarily upset people but i mm -hmm. i'm not afraid to write something from my point of view of how i feel about the truth and how i feel about myself right. um i for my agent for a long time my literary agent was um encouraging me to do it and i was like i don't understand why and she was like you're a biracial bicultural ex-mormon mexican gay kid who grew up in like boise idaho and ixtapa mexico in the 90s and you were a missionary in new york city during 9 11 like just write it <laughs> <laughs> i was like all right yeah so i don't think my i mean it's just my life i don't think my life's super like interesting or dynamic but like i think a lot of people who maybe come to writing autobio don't also don't feel that way but they're like all right cool i guess i will try this and see how it comes out but yeah, yeah i think there is something there um but yeah, we'll see. I, I I think I have to write some spec pages of the script to show potential editors like what the, it might look like and feel like. So yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, no, cool. I mean, we'll definitely keep our eyes out for that. I mean, I think that'll that'll be very interesting to a lot of people uh, when it happens. <laughs> um, did you always see yourself sort of gravitating towards YA, um, or is that a more recent development where it kind of just fit the stories you were telling? No, it's something I've always loved. I I was. Um, I always worked when I was living in Valencia, I was the children's book seller in the children's department. And so mm -hmm. I always read young adult. I always loved it. Um, it's something that I just picked up as a kid that I never, I never kind of like left that genre. You know, I read all the Oz books when I was a kid. Um, and I just seemed to really enjoy that. I t say in like every interview that um, a huge inspiration for me was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And mm -hmm. I think that, like, I know I have a friend who was 11 when Harry Potter came out. So she, like, grew up with those books, like, at the, being the same age as the characters. Yeah, and for yeah. me, that was Buffy. I was, like, in high school. High school was hell. I was in a small town. Um, I had a secret I couldn't share with anyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I loved that Buffy was this teen show. But what the title was telling you was Buffy means comedy, vampire means horror, Slayer means action. And this is going to be more than just one thing. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to get a lot of stuff here. And so I feel like that has definitely affected my work. You know, with my first book, Deadweight, I couldn't just write like, this is a cute teen story about a weight loss camp. I was like, no, nope, there also has to be a murder, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Same with Lifetime Passes. Like, this can't just be about a theme park. Like, there's got to be this weird, you know, I think people, some people are put off by the idea like, wait, what? These kids are going to take the elderly to the park in hopes that they die? Like, Ugh. yeah. And then they're kind of sideswiped with this like emotional... <laughs> I think um, it sounds it sounds like it's going to be darker yeah, than it is. Absolutely. Think, yeah. Um, or it can. Totally. And, you know, I'm now developing a few new ideas, a few new stories that don't have any teenage characters that are more horror based um, mm. because I do. I mean, I do want to sort of prove, I think, to myself that, like, I can write other stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't see why not. So, 
yeah, I'm going to start developing some of those things and putting that out there. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. So what, it, what else is coming next that you, that you can talk about? That's, uh, that's <clears> on so the for you. I have a book um, that is a biography, a graphic novel biography of Cesar Chavez that comes out um, in January. Yeah. Um, was going to come out earlier, but global shipping delays are horrible all over the place right now. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, Lifetime Passes will be out, I believe, November 23rd or 24th. Um, Marvel Voices Comunidades, um, starring the character I created for Reptile. Um, I believe that's December 8th. Um, I've written another book that, nope, I can't talk about it. <laughs> um, but hopefully, I think it should be announced in the new year. Um, but and then you know I've developed that autobio book, so if a company picks it up, hopefully you'll hear about it soon. We'll hear um, that announcement then. Yeah. Claudia and I would love to do more Hotel Dare. It's a project that she and I really, really love, and we've got like four volumes in our head for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially with like, I, I'm super inspired by um, Jorge Gutierrez just released an animated series on Netflix called Maya and the Three, mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, where's the fantasy like epic battle stuff for like latinos and he mm. delivered that and sure you know it's very like it, indian bollywood fighting and anime kind of influenced but with a mexican visual style yeah um and that's what i tried to do with hotel dare um but yeah i've i've got a bunch of ideas i guess it's just like the time to to write them and put them out there cool cool no we'll keep looking for all that awesome it, what uh what if anything are you reading in between uh in between working on all this stuff, any any wrecks that you have, comics or otherwise? Right now I'm reading enjoying. a novel um, by Naomi Alderman. It's been out for a while, but it's called The Power. Mm -hmm. And it's um, suddenly young women all over the world get the ability to electrocute people. Oh, cool. <laughs> and it's, yeah. And they can like ignite this power in within older women. And so it frightens the world. <laughs> and it yeah. gets into what would happen if, that, um, if that's going on. I'm also reading... Um, the new Ar Aristotle and Dante book, which um, this is the sequel that just came out. I'm always reading like three or four things at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, yeah, I'm mostly reading more prose stuff right now. I'm still reading um, Strange Academy, which is a title I really like. Yeah. And um, I believe that the run of Champions, which is another Marvel book with that, that's my favorite, just um, ended its run as well. Yeah. Um, but those were two of my favorite books. So that's mostly what I'm... And of course, I'm reading all the X-Men stuff, all the Krakoa stuff. Gotta, I have gotta to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it. Okay. Very cool. Um, so uh, I think that's about does it. Uh, where, where should people find you? Where should people look for you on, on social or website or anything like that? I was told in art school to be easy to find. So <laughs> my Twitter and Instagram is just Terry Blast. My website is terryblast.com. Yeah, I love it. It's amazing. It is funny. Like as I I've been doing more of these interviews, so you'll you'll be like number seventy that I've done since last year, oh, wow. I think, um, in this interview series, and I so appreciate now creators that are easy to find <laughs> because it's like I just want to talk to you. I just want to promote the work, you know. And yeah. some people are like, I don't want to do that, which fair enough. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's like I can't, I can't find you. Just just use your name. Yeah, I, I don't know where you are. Um, so yeah, much appreciated on my end. Uh, but cool. This was awesome. Terry it was a blast talking to you. Uh, people should definitely check out Lifetime Passes and the rest of the work. Again, we will include everything listed in the show notes. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff obviously at comicbookherald.com. You can find me at comicbookherald on Twitter and Instagram. And, uh, and everywhere else. So thanks for listening and enjoy the comics.